where we find that the most. James chapter four, uh, very practical, addressing uh, issues and things that we find and we encounter in life as a result of our fallen state and the world that we live in. So let's dive into that. In uh, read an interesting news article this week that uh, Oregon and New Jersey, which are the two states in the United States that you can't pump your own gas. There's a few exceptions that Oregon made not too long ago, like 2014, maybe 2004, somewhere in that ballpark in very rural areas. But for the most part, you pull up to the pump and somebody comes out and pumps gas for you. And there's all kinds of reasons that they have for that. But because of fuel prices the way they are, currently they're looking at the very small profit margin and having to pay somebody to do that. And so there's discussion about maybe allowing people to pump their own gas. And I remember the first time that I went to Oregon and, you know, because from Idaho, pump my gas my entire life. I jump out of the car and you go to grab the pump. The guy's like, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. And you're like, what? It's completely foreign to us. Now, I kind of liked it because, you know, you don't have to, if it's windy or if it's raining, if it's snowing, you don't have to get out of the vehicle. Some guy comes out, does all the dirty work. You just drive on. But mankind tends to be self-serving, right? We tend to be those who want to serve ourselves. We want to take care of the own, our own needs. We want to uh, be our own hero, so to speak, in those senses. And we like the satisfaction and the sense of accomplishment that comes from doing things ourselves, right? I, I, I did that. I built that. I fixed this. And some of that's out of necessity. And I'm not saying that there's a necessarily a pride associated with it, but, but there may be. And so we have to be watchful and on an even lower level, on a baser level. Sometimes we like the glory that's associated with serving ourselves. So James introduces this chapter identifying some of the fruits associated with that mindset, with a self-serving mindset. And we need to make no mistake that when we serve ourselves, we can't serve God. Is there what? There's a, there's a, oh, I see. Okay. Just, I just hear bells and think, like, what in the world? Okay. So here we are. James chapter four. Let's look at this. Um, before we move on, I want to just put us in remembrance of the context, the audience. We need to know the audience because the audience that James is writing to here, especially in this chapter, are duplicitous believers. Does anybody know what the word duplicitous means? We sort of have an idea because we hear, you know, duplicate more than one. We get that sense. But actually, it doesn't end there. It means to be deceitful in words or deeds. It's characterized by duplicity. Duplicity means contradictory doubleness of thought, speech, or action. Hypocrisy would be an example of duplicitous. Right? We're this way over here. We're that way over there. We say that we love God, but in reality, we're serving ourselves. That's that is the audience. And I think that's borne out throughout the entire book. First of all, in James chapter 1, verse 1, he addresses this letter we will remember, to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad, greeting. And then the next verse, my brethren, 
So we have these Jewish believers that are being addressed, but their mindset is all over the place. James is addressing issues within the church. And I think that we do well to remember and not separate ourselves from the issues that are being discussed here because they could be part of our life and part of our church without us realizing it. In verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. That duplicity, one foot in the world and one foot over here for God, straddling that fence. In James chapter 2, verse 1, My brother, and have not faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. He's addressing something that is happening. We say that we love the Lord, but we're unwilling to love everyone as he's commanded us to. In verse 17 of chapter 2, Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. The outward living and expression of the faith that is within us. I can say that I have faith, but do I live a life that is consistent with that profession? He's addressing duplicity. And even in the chapter 3, verse 2, for many things we offend all. We all struggle with sin. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and they will also to brighter the whole body. And the last uh, couple. James chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, and I'll just let you reference that, but that discussion of not being able to tame our tongue, that we curse God and we bless God with the same mouth, that our heart is divided, that we are unstable, that that is something that we have to address, and that God is really working in and through us to change, to mold us into the image of His Son, as we've talked about. This is the audience, and while we may be we need to be those who would look into the perfect law of liberty as he talks about at the end of chapter one and say, is this something that is a problem for me? Now, we may not be duplicitous in every area of our life, but there may be some areas where we, we do hold on to something, where we are a little this way and a little that way, depending on who we're around or what we're doing and those kinds of things. We need to have a very consistent life. And as we're going to find out, as I mentioned earlier, that if we're Serving ourselves in any way, shape, or form, we can't be serving God. That's the point that James makes. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2 for just a moment. Galatians chapter 2. I want to read uh, verses 11 through 16. But when Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. So Paul's writing here, and he's got a problem with Peter, and he's going to explain what that was. For before the certain came uh, from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. Now just think about all of this coming together, right? Here's those that have come from James, James dealing specifically, writing specifically to the nation of Israel, the believing Jews. And so we have those of the circumcision, these believing Jews that have come to to Antioch, and Peter is fearful of them. What are they going to think? Because here I am in Antioch with all these Gentiles. That ought not to be so. From a Jewish perspective, right, we, we look at uh, even the Samaritans in John chapter 4, when Jesus en encounters that Samaritan woman at the well, it was uncommon for them to travel through Samaria. They would normally travel around unless there was some great need 
to go straight, straight through because that was the quicker way. Samaritans were only half Jewish. They were corrupt. They were defiled, so to speak, from that perspective. They weren't allowed to participate in the worship. They weren't allowed to bring their offerings. They were disassociated or they were disavowed. And so here's Peter. Oh, what are they going to think? I'm associating with these Gentiles. I'm caught up here. He's duplicitous. When these people are around, I'm this way. When these people are around, I'm this way. Paul makes it very evident throughout. And it, Paul, God makes it very evident, primarily through Paul, that there is one body. Right In the book of Ephesians, it talks about God tearing down the wall of division between Jew and Gentile. There is one body of Christ. And it shouldn't be an issue that these people and these people would eat at the same table. Okay, so Paul is upset with Peter, and he withstood him to his face. He goes right to him, and he says, this is a problem. He confronts him about it. Verse 13, and the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas was also carried away with this, their dissimulation. Right, this is where they're caught up. Dissimulation literally means hypocrisy, duplicitiveness. This is what's happening. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly, according to the truth of the gospel, that's the problem. That they're not walking in accordance with the truth of the gospel. I said unto Peter before them all, if thou being a Jew, livest after the matter of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Listen, if you as a Jew, free from the law now, can live as the Gentiles, Peter, you're the one, you got the vision. Don't call unclean what I've called clean. Then why would you you make the Gentiles live as the Jews? Why would you put that yoke of bondage back upon them? Why would you stumble all of these people to somehow add these works of righteousness, which is effectively what they've done? We have to keep the Old Testament law. We have to keep this division between Jew and Gentile which is nowhere found in the gospel. Verse 15, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not about the works. It's not a, Paul is addressing duplicity within the church, just as James is addressing duplicity within the church. And he addresses it head on. Now, we, we probably don't have exactly the same symptoms, but we may harbor it somewhere. We probably all do to greater or lesser degree. We need to understand the audience. This is what Paul, this is what James is writing. This is where we're at. This is what he's addressing in the church. So let's read verse one. From whence come wars and fightings amongst you? Come they not even hence, even of the lust that war in your members? Okay. Where does the strife and the the confusion and the anger, the the fighting amongst you. Where does that come from is the question. And the answer is this, doesn't it come from your lust? 
Now, the word lust in the Greek is the Greek word hedon, which is where we get our English word hedonism. Hedonism, which is the pursuit of selfish indulgence. That's what it means. The pursuit of selfish indulgence. And I will tell you that the world would say that that is the chief end of man, to pursue self. That, that selfish indulgence, that's it. Because if you're just an animal, if you're just like every other creature, why would you not do those things that gratify and satisfy you? Why would you restrain yourself? The answer for you and I as believers is because we are not, we are created in the image of God. Not only that, we are reborn in the righteous image of God. Therefore, we are his ambassadors. We represent him. Why would we restrain ourselves to honor and glorify the Lord? We don't follow after. We don't dive into this pursuit of selfish indulgence. But we all do. This is not an uncommon thing. There's an acknowledgement here, right? This is what he said. Let's, let's read verse 2. You lust. No, no, no. It's all in verse 1. Even your lust, that war in your members. There's an acknowledgement that there is war with self amongst the believers. Right? There, there's this going back and forth. It doesn't mean that we always yield to it. It doesn't mean that we always give into it. But it does mean that there is a struggle within us. We live in a fallen world. We are fallen people who have been redeemed. And we struggle with the effects of sin on a daily basis. Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 7. Let's turn there. And we covered this when we went through and studied this chapter. But let's go and look at Paul. Because for us, a couple of things. Number one, it's an encouragement that this is common. What is what does Paul write in 2 Corinthians? There is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. Right? We, we should understand that the struggle with sin, the struggle with self-indulgence, all of those things is common. You and me both, these believers in, written to in the book of James, those believers written throughout the New Testament, Paul himself struggled with that sin. It's real. Now, it doesn't mean that we always yield. It doesn't mean that we always resist. It just means, and it's an acknowledgement, that the struggle is real. This is what Paul says, beginning in verse 14, Romans chapter 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Right here I am. I live in a sin-filled world. That's effectively what he's saying. For that which I do not, that I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. Right, we're just going to sum that up. The bad stuff that I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. And the good stuff that I do want to do, that's what I don't find myself doing. That's what he just said in more modern English, not Elizabethan English. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Right? And this is what he's saying. The law represents and gives us clarity about what is right and what is wrong. Here I am, I'm finding myself doing something that I know I shouldn't be doing. It's a confirmation that the law is good and appropriate. It is clarified sin, which is its purpose, always has been. He goes on. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. Our sin nature, there it is. That struggle, that, that inward lust that is warring that James is writing about, it's there. Now, we're no longer slaves to it, and that's a key point that we're going to talk about. For I know that in me, that in my flesh dwells there no good thing. 
to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would do, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. That's not an excuse. Paul is not saying that it's just my sin nature overcoming me. No, no, no. What he's saying is that's not the reality of who I am. I am not defined as a believer. We're not defined by the sins that we commit. We are declared righteous. We are justified in God's eyes. We don't cease to be in his favor. We don't cease to be his children as a result of falling sin. That's what he's addressing. Our sin doesn't define us. God has defined who we are in Christ. And he made that clear throughout the New Testament. He made it clear even in the Old Testament. I find then, verse 21, a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Our sin nature is still there. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. There's a struggle with sin. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body, this body of this death? Hey, Paul acknowledges who I am. This is who, and, and now listen, because we struggle with sin does not mean that we are stuck and trapped in it. He asks a rhetorical question, oh, wretched man that I am. There's an acknowledgement of his sinfulness, just as we should acknowledge our sinfulness and our failure, and we seek repentance. Who shall deliver us? And he makes this bold proclamation, this is the gospel. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, that with the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. I thank God through Jesus Christ. That is who we are delivered by. Who has delivered us from being this wretched person into the justified reality of who we are in Jesus Christ? Him, by his sacrifice. Okay? That's the reality. There's a source of conflict that we're going to find within ourselves, and it's our sin nature. We struggle with it. The world struggles with it. You and I both struggle with it. Our church will struggle with it. It doesn't define who we are. We are still believers in Jesus Christ. But as a result of the times that we yield to it or the result of those around us yielding to sin, we will find that there are fruits and effects associated with that. Why is there strife? Why is there angst? Why is there not getting along and trouble? It's a result of sin. It's a result of people yielding to the lusts of their flesh. He continues, <clears throat> the choice is before you and me. In addition to, to, to what we just talked about, in, in keeping with the contextual flow, which is, is jumps up into James chapter 3, and I want to read James chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. If you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, and remember, that's a zealous pursuit. That, that word strife literally means self. I am zealously pursuing self. That sounds like hedonism, doesn't it? It's exactly what it is. Here it is. If you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. Call sin, sin, in other words. Let's be acknowledging of what is happening in and around us. 
This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. We didn't learn that from Christ. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. For where envy and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So the question then is this, what will we mind? Are we going to mind these things or are we going to mind those things? Look at me at James chapter 1, verse 14. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. What that tells us is that there is a choice before us. Here it is. I can pursue self. I can pursue the glory of God. One of the two, the choices before me, choices before you. What am I going to do? What am I going to mind? What is my priority here? Now, when we yield to the temptation that is before us, that's called sin. The good news is that Jesus paid for sin. And we didn't, we didn't fail. We did fail. We did fail. But we didn't lose status, so to speak. Our sin doesn't define us. God has declared us to be righteous, and that is true and remains true. That's an important point that we need to hold on to. Okay, but here it is. There's a choice before us. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And he goes on the next verse. When lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. But when we yield to it, that's when we engage in sin. The temptation itself is not sin. Temptation is common to man. But God gives grace, right? He gives us more grace. So we might stand under it. We may make the right choice. Which should tell you something. That if I'm going to choose to sin, I have rejected what God has offered me. The grace that he has extended me, I have rejected. I keep that in your mind. We're going to come back to that. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7 for a moment. Mark chapter 7, let's look at verses 20 through 23. <clears throat> Jesus is addressing here, the Pharisees have accused his... <laughs> Listen, Jesus, your, your disciples are not washing their hands. And so therefore they're unclean. That's what he's addressing. And Jesus is making the point, he's... he's addressing the spiritual heart behind what is what the discussion is. It's not what's going in you that is defiling you. It's like it's what's coming out, what is being revealed to already be in you. Jesus is talking about this being a heart issue. We beat that horse last week. It's still a heart issue. Okay? Verse 20, Mark chapter 7. That which comes out of the man, that defiles the man. Right? When we've yielded to sin, when we choose to do that thing, that's what that's when it becomes sin. It isn't just that we, that we saw or that we heard or that we were tempted. From, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, theft, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. These are the things that we yield ourselves to when we give in to that temptation. 
when it's put before us and we choose that over the grace that God has extended to us that we might not sin. That's what's in us. That is our base nature. And the enemy is going to sow to that base nature all the time. And occasionally he's going to reap of that base nature. And what's going to come out are wars and strifes and those things that are happening. And all of these things that we just looked at here, these fruits, adulteries, evil thoughts, fornication, murders, blasphemy. In Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> verses 5 through 8. Before we read those verses, I just want to go back to verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. In Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. I just want you, I'm trying to reiterate this point that that sin that we've committed doesn't define who we are. Because there are many Christians who live in defeat because they failed yesterday. Woe is me. I can't even start up. And we live in this constant perpetual state of defeat. It is not true. It is not real. We are at that point yielding to the temptation that is in front of us that you are your own savior and you failed. And so therefore you can't save yourself. That's always been true. And what the enemy wants us to do is focus on that alone and not focus on the fact that, yeah, you can't, but you know what? Jesus can, and he did. There's a big difference. Don't buy in. Don't be duped. Know the gospel. Trust in the word of God. There is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Now we jump down to verse 5, Romans chapter 8. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, and they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So we, whether you're talking about unbelievers or believers, if we're going to pursue the things of the flesh, we're not minding the things of the Spirit. You're in or you're out. Now for unbelievers, right, we're going to there's this pursuit of self. That's their natural estate. Unbelievers will always choose to serve self. That's the way that it is. Even if it seems altruistic, right? I'm going to help my neighbor. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to do this. Why are you doing that? For what you hope you may reap as a result later. You are soothing your conscience. You are making yourself feel better. It is still self-indulgence. I don't want to acknowledge the fact that I am a sinner. And so therefore, I'm going to do everything I can to make myself feel good about who I am. For the believer, we make a choice, and we may choose to follow after the things of the flesh. We may yield to that. We may do it on a semi-regular or a regular basis in some areas. And in those areas, we are completely ignoring the things of the Spirit. We cannot serve God when we are entangled with sin. Verse 6, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against god we're going to come back to that word enmity when we get into verse two for it is not subject to the law of god neither indeed can be so then they that are in the flesh cannot please god 
They that are in the flesh cannot please God. It's a walking in self-indulgence and self-trust, self-faith. For without faith, we read in Hebrews 11, it is impossible to please God. To acknowledge that I am who I am in, in the light of God's law, a sinner, and that Jesus Christ did everything to walk in that truth and that trust, that's where we please God. Turn me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 talked about the unbeliever who may try to soothe their conscience, who, who through their good works try to merit favor with God to get out of whatever they can, whether it's in this life or whatever the next life may be for them. And they don't realize that, that it is temporary. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, love not the world, Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but as of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abides forever. Right? When we pursue those things, they don't count for anything, they don't last for eternity, they don't come up as evidence later before God, our eternal judge, who's, who, well, yeah, gee, you kind of outweighed your good with your bad, or your bad with your good. It's temporary. It is temporary. And for you and I as believers, we need to realize the same thing, that it is temporary. The satisfaction that we may reap in our flesh as a result of yielding to that temptation is temporary. What do we read in the book of Leviticus? Your sin will find you out. We didn't hide anything from God. He knows it. It's already there. It's cleared. It's exposed in front of him. He knows all about it. He even sent his son to die for it before we committed the sin. There it is. It's done. It's complete. He knows. It's temporary. But what does last as a result of that is the perpetuation of yielding. And what I mean by that, right, if you take a piece of metal and you just bend it and then you straighten it back out and then you bend it again and you straighten it back out, over time it gets easier and easier to bend and ultimately it fails. This is what we condition ourselves to do, right? We choose day in and day out to yield to, to the flesh, to walk after the flesh, pursue those things, to walk in opposition and not receive the grace of God to stand against those things and over time, that becomes our natural inclination. We yield almost instantaneously. In fact, the temptation may not even have to be in front of us because it's already within us. It has taken root. We have to remain steadfast. It's temporary. And you know what? Last as a result, here we are continually yielding to it. We hear a sermon like this where, boy, you're... We're giving in to sin. We read the scripture and it engages us. God, by his spirit, sows conviction in our heart. And you know what lasts? The shame associated with the sin that we've committed, with the sin that we yield ourselves to. That doesn't go away. Until we repent. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
He doesn't leave us hanging there. He cleanses us from that unrighteousness. It's probably going to be hard. If we have hardened our heart in, in an area to that extent, it's going to be hard. But God is faithful. The choice is before us. We can choose peace. We can choose conflict. We can choose the soda of the flesh. Let's look here in verse 2, James chapter 4. He says, you lust and you have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. Verse, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. There's no satisfaction in that. Now, we talk about murder here. Well, I've never killed anybody. I might have yielded the sin, but I never killed anybody. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22, he talks about murder. And nowhere is anybody shedding blood in that description. Whether we see those who have and we don't have, whether we see those who are receiving praise and honor for the, the, whatever they've done, recognition for a job well done, which is right and appropriate, and we envy or we, we have murdered. There it is. Jesus addresses the heart. We may not have gone out and killed anybody. We may have as a result. This could be literal, but it could also be figurative. From our perspective, in God's perspective, it's all the same. It's serious. And in the end, here, did, did you notice that? Here it is, all of this. We pursue, we lust, we kill, we desire to have, we, we fight, we do everything that we can to get it. We even ask God for it. And what do we end up with? Nothing. We don't receive it. The deceitfulness of sin that is before us is that it, it doesn't satisfy. Even if you get that thing, even if you get that thing, it doesn't satisfy. There's some other thing out there. There's some other lust of the flesh, some other desire. It doesn't satisfy. In Galatians chapter seven, six, Galatians chapter six, verses six through seven. Excuse me, Galatians 6, 7 through 10. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And what are we, what are we sowing here? He goes on, he talks about, For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, putrefication, death. So that's what the word corruption means. We're not getting anything good out of the deal. We're sowing to our flesh and we're reaping what, what we should get as a result of it. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Right? Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, building on that foundation of Jesus Christ. And however we live, however we, we conduct ourselves, it's either those things that are consumable in the fire or those things that will last. And this is sort of the same thing. What are we sowing with? What are we building with? And what endures. When we sow the flesh, there's no lasting reward there. There's nothing that lasts. But on the other side of that, when we sow to the Spirit, when we're walking, minding the things of the Spirit, those things endure. There is reward for that. 
There is something to look forward to as a result of walking in the Spirit. Let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season, we shall reap if we faint not. It's hard to live in the world that we live in. And I think that it's probably harder than it was 100 years ago. The things that we are conditioned to be accepting of by the world around us are far more aggressive and far more removed from the things of God than they were in the past. Society as a whole is far more accepting of sin than it ever has been, and that will probably be even truer in the next generation, which, if you read the Bible, I would fully expect. All that means is that for you and I, it is probably harder in some respects than it was. Now, that doesn't mean that all of this isn't true. This isn't a result of what's outside of us. This is a result of what's already in us coming out. The struggle in generations past was still the same. What is lacking today and what is different today is that what is acceptable, the only place you may feel any conviction, hopefully, is within the church. Because society at large doesn't care. Whereas in the past, society may even be condemning of sin. So we can be accepting of things and we can get away with it all week long. And then on a Sunday, we come and we hear, it's like when we send our kids to public school, right? All day long, five days a week, they're being filled with potential heresy and lies. And then we have just a few hours in a day left and the weekends to try and clean up the mess. It's kind of the same scenario, only it happens across the board for you and I as believers. We live in a world that is filled with sin, that is acknowledging sin. And if we sow to that, we're going to reap destruction, corruption. Don't be weary in well-doing. Stand firm. It's the harder thing to do for sure. It's the harder thing to do for sure. It's not going to be easy. There may be persecution, there may be ridicule, there may be all kinds of things associated with it, but don't be weary in well-doing. For in due season, we shall reap if we faint not. Now, I don't know what the harvest is going to look like, but I'm not 100% convinced that that's specifically talking about only a spiritual harvest in the next life. I think that there is a harvest to be reaped here in this life. And I base that upon what we see historically, those who were persecuted, we stand fast. Why? Because this is sin in the world. We're opposed to sin. We're standing for the things of God. Here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the truth. And we're going to be unwavering it. And what happens? People respond to the truth. They hear the gospel. Why would we stand for that if it, if it meant certain death? Because the things of God are more important than this life. Oh, that's really substantial. I really need to hear what you're saying because I don't I, I can't say that kind of thing with certainty. I'm convinced that there is more to reap than just a spiritual in the next life harvest. I don't know exactly what that looks like. Maybe that's within our own homes, maybe that's within our own children, maybe that's within our own communities. Whatever or wherever it may be, 
don't be weary in well-doing. As we have therefore opportunity, he says in verse 10, let us do good unto all men, especially them who are of the household of faith. Here is Paul addressing this sowing to the flesh, the same topic that James is writing about. And he specifically says, listen, we need to find the natural outlet for doing good, first and foremost, within the household of faith. We're going to engage with each other. We're going to seek opportunity to serve one another. And that should be a characteristic. should be something that would be an enticement to the world around us. It's part of that reaping. In addition to strife and war, we see the fruits of self-service. There's no satisfaction. We find murder. We find further proliferation of selfish lust. He talks about this asking. He says, you, you ask <clears throat> so that you may consume upon your lusts. And he makes it very clear, listen, you're not going to receive. God's not going to hear that prayer. He's not going to answer it in the affirmative. You're still going to reap what you sow. God's not mocked. He's not a genie in a bottle. You don't get three wishes. If it's contrary to his plan and purpose to his will, and it's contrary to his plan and purpose and his will. Now, here's the thing. I'm praying for a good thing. But you're praying, and don't miss this. You're praying that you may consume it upon your lust. Lord, help me to do this thing, this wonderful thing, whatever it is. What is your motivation? God's not going to answer that prayer if your motivation is for your own glory. So that other people, man, look at how spiritual that person is. So that you can be a Pharisee. It's not going to answer that prayer. You're consuming upon your lust still. Self-indulgence. So how should we pray? We want to talk about prayers that are heard, those things that, that we can pray that are consistent with. And, and ultimately, what is the heart behind that? Because that's where James is talking. Turn, to, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 5. Let's read verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayer and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him, that was able to save him from death and was heard and that he feared. Now, this is speaking about Melchizedek. Now, remember Melchizedek was this... Uh, king of Salem, and he came to, to uh, Abraham, and Abraham actually gave tithes to him. And here in the next verse, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. This is in the context, thou art my son, verse 5, today have I begotten thee. And also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have this idea clearly taught here, in, in, in my opinion, in Hebrews, that Jesus Christ was Melchizedek, that he was a pre-incarnate appearance to Abraham. So what do we have here? We have this description of Jesus' prayer, his interaction with the Father by prayer. And there's a couple of things that I want to notice here. 
Number one, it's an act of trust in God. When we pray, we, we are acknowledging that, Lord, you know better than I do. When Jesus prayed, what did he say in the Garden of Gethsemane? Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. You know better than I do. Lord, if this is something that I am praying, even though it seems like a good thing, if this is something that I'm praying that is inconsistent with your will, Lord, or if I have an impure motive, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus, in the days of his flesh, when he was offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, I'm convinced that this is talking about Jesus's prayer that we read in John chapter 17. That as he sweats, blood, as it were, in the agony, looking forward to the cross, looking forward to being made sin and receiving the punishment for sin for all of mankind. This is what he's talking, this is what it's talking about. With strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from dead and was heard in that he feared. Jesus was heard in that he feared. that he would reverence, that he would honor God as sovereign. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is directly asked, Lord, teach us to pray. How should we pray? In other words, how do we pray prayers that God would hear? Jesus responds, and he gives them a model prayer. Now, I'm not saying that we should just roll out the Lord's prayer and that God's always going to hear that. I mean, we might be rolling it out there simply because we want people to know that, yeah, I memorized this. <laughs> this is one of my memory verses. I got her down. Look how good I am. It might be an impure motive, but this is what Jesus says beginning in Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. First and foremost, God, your, your name is holy. That's what hallowed means. It is holy uncorrupted, untainted by sin, perfect. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. The first and foremost thing, God, you are holy, you are God, and you are God alone. Secondly, your will be done. Your kingdom come. Lord, we want to be about your business first and foremost. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, whatever you have for me to eat, give me that. Whether it's enough, in my opinion, or not, Lord, I'm going to be satisfied. Because why? Because your will be done. We've started there. We've built upon the foundation of submitting to the plan of God in our lives for whatever may come. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lord, the things that we owe you, the debts that we have, forgive us. And there's this reminder put in the middle of that, that we're forgiving others as a result. And lead us not into temptation. Now, let no man say that when he's tempted, he's tempted by God. We read that in James chapter 1. We're tempted by the lesser within us. This is a prayer for the grace of God in the midst of those temptations. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, we pray for your grace that we may stand under those things, that we may remain a consistent witness in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. The prayer is for a deliverance from evil. 
good, bad circumstances, whatever it may be, there is potential for evil. Lord, deliver us from that temptation. Give us grace that we may stand. For thine is the kingdom. No, it's not mine, and it's not yours. God's is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. This is how we pray. This is the heart behind it. It is a complete and total submission to God's plan and purpose. In 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So when we pray in accordance with God's will, he's going to hear us. We have that assurance. We have that absolute confidence that he's heard us. He continues on, and we know that he hears us whatsoever we ask. We know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. When when we pray those things that are consistent with his will, we know that he hears us, and we know that he's going to answer those. And I realize that that answer may look different, but no, it's still an answer. He hears us. He's going to answer those in accordance with his will, just as we prayed them in accordance with his will, and we're committed to submission to his will. Not pursuit of self. In James chapter 4, verse 4, he hits pretty hard with the next statement. He says, you adulterers and you adulteresses, you who are unfaithful to me, you who have committed to relationship with me, yet have reneged and turned your back on me. Know you not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now, the word enmity, it means active opposition. This this doesn't mean that, you know, it's one of the friend of my enemy is my enemy, and the enemy of my friend is my friend. You know, it's it's not that kind of relationship. This is an active, this means I chose to be your enemy. And I'm aligning myself against you purposefully whether we're acknowledging that, whether we recognize it or not, that's what's happening. When we choose to sow to the flesh, when we mind the things of the world, that's what we are doing. We're against God at that point, and actively so. And we have to be wary of that. We have to realize that that's what's happening. And for you and I as believers, that's a big deal. That's a severe thing. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6 for a moment. In Romans chapter 6, we have this, uh, idea first and foremost, well, we're going to read it, so I'll just save my words and we'll let the Word of God speak. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And so there's this idea of this that if we sin and grace reigns over sin, and that it covers that sin, if we want to get more grace, what do we do? Well, we sin more. That's how we receive more grace. And that's 
what Paul is addressing. And he says, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Note, we are dead to sin. That is not who we are. That is not defining us any longer. That isn't the reality of who we are. We're no longer slaves to it. Know you not that so many of you were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ, there's a metaphor, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Now, this isn't linking our salvation or, or, or the success of our walk with the Lord to baptism. I think you should be baptized. I think it is an honoring thing to the Lord, and I think it's a commitment that we make. But he's not hinging our success upon that. He's saying that it is a figure, it is a metaphor of what has really happened. That just as Jesus Christ died and was laid in the grave and then brought back in life, when we are symbolically, through baptism, acknowledging that, yeah, I am in Christ, and my old nature is dead, 2 Corinthians 5.17, and I am now made new and raised up again, I'm going to walk in the newness of life that God has given me. That's what it's committing to. That's what it's symbolizing. Verse 5, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now, we've already acknowledged that there is a struggle with our old nature. That that old man nailed to the cross isn't yet dead, but sits there taunting us, mocking us. The difference is that we are no longer slaves to it. And he makes that point further down in, the, in Romans 6. That when we yielded ourselves to it, when that's what we did, we were slave to it, but we are no longer a slave to sin. In fact, it says that we are now a servant of God as a result of what he's done for us. We don't have to serve it anymore. So the question is this, this is what God has done for us on our behalf. Where is our allegiance? Where does my heart lie? Am I going to yield myself to sin? Am I going to continue to participate in that? Am I going to sow to the flesh and mind the things of the world and be an enemy of God? Or am I going to be one of his? In James chapter 4, verse 17, Therefore to him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. We know that we should live for God. It's our reasonable service, we would read in Romans chapter 12. And for us to choose not to do it, it's sin. Just be clear about that. I want you to consider the enemy. If we're going to be on the enemy's side, let's consider the enemy. In Isaiah chapter 14, turn there with me for just a moment. And I'm going here in particular because it will give us insight as we progress this morning. Isaiah chapter 14. <clears throat> Isaiah 14 verses 12 through 15. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will 
exalt my throne above the stars. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the highest of the clouds. I will be like the most high. What did Satan do? He said, I will be God. I will be equal to God. I will replace the most high is what he's saying. So here we are. If we're going to join the enemy's team, the first proclamation that we make is that I'm going to replace God. I'm going to be my own God. That self-indulgence, that self-seeking glory for ourselves, all that's what we're doing. And just as we read, when we sow to the flesh, we reap corruption. In the next verse, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Now, for you and I as believers, we have the assurance of our salvation. Satan doesn't have that. He has the assurance of his destruction. But we're still going to reap corruption. There's going to be heartache and pain associated with being against God. This is the, this is the team that we're joining. This is the side that we're choosing to be on if we are not going to be on God's side. And whether we acknowledge it or not, we're either worshiping self at best and worshiping Satan and exalting him at worst. Don't be duped. First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for you and he's looking for me. And he's going to do his darndest to capitalize on the weakness, right? Here's a roaring lion. They don't come in and pick the healthiest out of the herd. They pick those who may be straggling. They're looking for the one that might have a limp. They're looking for the one that is, they want the easy meal. And you and I, because we live in a world that is corrupted by sin, because we struggle with sin, we are easy targets. That's just the reality. So what do we have to do? We have to be sober. We have to be watchful and we have to be vigilant. We can't be weary and well-doing. We have to stand firm. Like the muskox, right? The, when the enemy attacks, what do they do? They surround the weak ones and they put them in the middle. You who are spiritual, when you see somebody stuck in sin, we read this in Galatians, restore such a one, protect them. Be the muskox that gathers around them and keeps the enemy at bay. Bear that burden with them. We need one another. We need the body of Christ at large. We need that fellowship and that engagement in each other's lives that we may put off and be those allies in the common battle that we have. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are strong to the tearing down of strongholds. Therefore, we've got to take every thought captive. We're going to come back to that. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, we find the armor of God. And one thing that I want to point out in particular, because I think that has important bearing upon what we're talking about this morning. Because when we talk about the allegiance of our heart, it's talking about who do we trust? Right? Who do we trust? Do I trust that God is going to fulfill the promises that he's made? Or do I trust that myself, I can fulfill those on my own? Or that the enemy is going to fulfill those for me. Because that's the choice that we're making. 
In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, above all. Now that should make us think twice, right? Above all, this is an important part of the armor of God. Above all, taking the shield of faith, right? The shield of trust that I'm going to make the conscious decision to trust in what God has said and what he has fully and completely done and stand upon what he has said and articulated in his word. First of all, there it is, trust. Taking the shield of faith, wherein you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. We'll be able to stop. So Satan shoots in, right? Think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of, of Eden, because Satan doesn't have any new tactics. He may capitalize upon a different lust within you, and it may be different, but he's using the same tactic. He shot this little dart of doubt. Did God really say? Well, yeah, he really said. That's exactly what he said. He said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's why I'm not going to eat it. Shut it down at that point. I trust him over you. This little dart of doubt was cast in there. This fiery dart, there it was. And then he continues to build upon that. He just does the same thing over and over and over. And what happens is the shield of trust is put down. Well, no, he just knows that if you eat it, you'll be like him. He just, he's holding something back from you, casting doubt, smearing the character of who God is so that we might doubt his goodness, so we might doubt everything that he's done for us. How do we quench the fiery darts of the devil? By trust, by faith. Don't be duped. Don't be fooled into thinking that God is somehow not for us, that he is somehow not on our watching out for our best. We have to trust him. We're going to talk about the allegiance of our heart. That's where our trust is established and rooted. James chapter 4, verse 5. Do you think the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? Now, this is, a, this is a tough one because the spirit that's being discussed here, while it may not be capitalized, I'm convinced that this is speaking about God. We tend to put jealousy, uh, which is what the word envy here literally means. We tend to put jealousy into a negative category. But jealousy is this, right? <laughs> you get that, that new car and you're kind of jealous of it. That means that I'm concerned about it. and so. You get the guys that, you know, they don't park in one spot, they park in two and they straddle the line. They're watching out for that vehicle because they don't want to see it dinged or chipped. You, you, you wash it more often. You change the oil regularly. You're jealous for it, so you care for it. You, you do those things necessary to benefit. So here it is, the spirit that is within us, the Holy Spirit that dwells in you, desires you jealously that God is invested in us, that he, that he wants us so badly to walk in trust and in unison with him that he is engaged actively in our lives. That's what this verse is saying. And do, Exodus chapter tw uh, 20, verse 5, is the nation of Israel receives 
uh, the Ten Commandments as, as they're being given um, to Moses. This is what he says. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Right? Don't, have, don't worship any other gods. Don't have any other graven images. Those are the commands that are being referenced here. Why? Because I am a jealous God. And that's not a bad thing. What it means is that I am looking out for you, that I am engaging in this relationship with you. We have this covenantal relationship now, Israel. And I am engaged with you. And I know the heartache and the suffering and the pain that's going to come as a result of those things when you yield to them, when you fall to them. God wasn't giving this because he was, you know, somehow competing with this pantheon of gods and, and wanted to make sure that our affiliation with him was locked in. Just like all of the other laws that he gave in the Ten Commandments and, and elsewhere, he gave them for our benefit. So that we might realize that it is sinful, that it is wrong, that we're going to sow to the flesh as a result of worshiping these other false deities. And because I am so concerned about you that I don't want you to fall prey to it. That I don't want you to even exalt yourself or anything else to a position that I should rightfully hold for you because I am for you and not against you. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, we read the same idea. You look at this up in the, in the Old Testament. God says this about himself multiple times that I am a jealous God. Like I said, we have this negative connotation about it. And I would expect that over time, that negative connotation has come up because the enemy is trying to cast doubt. Again, trying to smear the character of God. But what it means is this care and concern. And when we look at it in that light, it makes total sense and is completely compatible with who God is. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. This consuming fire, it's, you're all in. There's no pulling it back out, right? We've entered into his camp. We're not losing anything. We're here. We are. But there is an expectation that we're going to walk in faith, that we're going to remain connected with him. Just as Israel had this covenant relationship with God, we have a covenant relationship with God. And now I'm not, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that your salvation, that that relationship with God is based upon or any way maintained by your adherence to, to right or wrong. We've already acknowledged that we're going to fail, that there's going to be struggles with sin. And sometimes we'll win and sometimes we won't. But what I'm talking about is that this is what God wants. He wants us all in. Remember in the book of Revelation, he, he's condoning the, the Laodicean church. He says, listen, you're not hot and you're not cold. You need to be one or the other. You're either in or you're out. But you can't be on both sides. Those things that are lukewarm, I spew them out of my mouth. Our God is a consuming fire. And we have the privilege and the honor to be able to serve him, to walk with him, to be engaged with him, for him to be caring and jealous of us in the things that we are engaged in. When we would 
walk duplicitously, have one foot over here, one foot over there, we would rightly be called adulterous. We would rightly be called those who are two-sided. This is, this is reality. This is happening in your life and it's happening in my life. and It happens in the church everywhere. But God doesn't leave us helpless. So how do we overcome? How do we work through this? Well, first, we humble ourselves. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. Do you th- I'm going to read verse 5 again. Do you think the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy? He, so same context, same person, this spirit that's within us, the Holy Spirit, gives more grace. Wherefore, God said, resist the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Humble yourselves. This is being quoted from the scripture that says in vain. Uh, excuse, excuse me, not the scripture that says in vain. Uh, he gives more grace. Wherefore, he says, excuse me, verse 6 there. It's a quotation from Proverbs 3.34, and it's talking about the scorner. It's the same idea. The person that would scorn, that would mock, that would ridicule, that would doubt, that would lift themselves up. I know better. That's what's being discussed. That's where it's quoting from. Remember in Daniel chapter 4, and just that whole chapter, but ultimately verses 30 through 37. You remember Nebuchadnezzar? And he's had this vision, and, he's, and Daniel gives him this vision. This is what's going to happen. You've exalted yourself. You've lifted yourself up. You have put yourself in the place of God. And he's, he's there looking out over Babylon. He says, look at this. This Babylon, this majestic city, this empire that I have built for my glory. And his sanity leaves him, and his hair grows out like feathers, and his claws his nails grow out like claws, and he spends seven years eating the grass like an ox and sleeping on the ground like an animal. And when he humbled himself, he received grace. He received his senses back. He was restored to his position. And at the conclusion of that chapter, in verse 37, this is what he says, I worship God. There was a change of heart within him. If we want to stand here, if we want to be receptive to the grace that God is extending to us, we have to humble ourselves. You nor I, within ourselves, are adequate to stand under the temptation that we face. But God gives grace to those who will humble themselves. James chapter 1, verse 5 If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and upbraids not, and it shall be given him. Lord, what do I do in this circumstance? Here I am faced with this trial, with this temptation, with this hardship. Ask for wisdom. Humble yourself. We won't figure it out on our own necessarily. Lord, what portions what of your word applies to this what comes to bear what wisdom do i need to glean from your word by your spirit lead me there 
Reprove me in truth and of righteousness and of justice. Remind me of everything that you have said. James chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Hearken, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which, have, which he has promised to them that love him? those who have humbled themselves, those who have submitted themselves to the Lord. If we want to overcome the temptations and the trials, if we want to overcome the trial of the lust of our flesh, those things that are going to consume us, we have to humble ourselves. And it begins with an acknowledgement of the sinfulness that we have. It begins with repentance because that's that's part of that acknowledgement. Lord, here I am. This is my wrong thinking about it. Give me your right thinking about it. We humble ourselves. We need to let the same mind that is in us be the the mind that is in Christ. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. This comes down to our faith, to our trust. Am I going to believe the things of God or am I not going to believe the things of God? Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. There's a reference in that, all of that, to the humility of Jesus Christ and to our humility. I'm going to remove myself from the throne of my own life and let God be in control here. But Jesus made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Let this mind be in you. Think about things the way that Jesus thinks about them. The Holy Spirit is promised by Jesus himself in John 14, 15, and 16, in those chapters, to be that very instrument where God will bring this to our mind and correct our hearts. The spirit that is within us, lust him, he desires to watch out for us and is an instrument that God is going to use to reprove us and correct our thinking, to bring to mind the word of God that it may have its way in us. In Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. He goes through and he gives this list of walking as the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. And he says, but you have not so learned Christ. This is what we learned from Christ. We already knew how to do that. What did we learn from Christ? If so, though you have heard him, have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. All right, so we've put off this old man. Here he is. He's hanging on the cross as we read about in Romans chapter 6. But we're not going to listen to it any longer. We put off the, the old man according to the deceitful lusts. Right? That's all he's got. He's going to try and entice us with those things, but they're deceitful. They don't satisfy. They don't last. They don't benefit us whatsoever. We reap corruption, destruction as a result. 
verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Be renewed in the spirit of mind that you put on the new man, which is after God, is created in righteousness and true holiness. Right, so there's an acknowledgement that here we are. We want to think about ourselves the way that God thinks about That's why I hammered in the beginning that we are not defined by the sin that we commit. We are defined by the declaration of God and our justification. We need to keep that mind about us because the enemy is going to attack us there. He wants us to doubt our salvation. If we are indeed born again, he wants us to be useless Christians at best. But we're not going to follow, we're not going to yield ourselves to that kind of deceit. We're going to let this mind be in us that is in Christ, and we're going to be renewed in our spirit. We've put on the new man, which is after God, created in righteousness and true holiness. That is who we are. And just as he talks about this renewing of our mind, how does that happen? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 26, we usually go here and we talk about the roles of husbands and wives, but that's all an illustration of Jesus's relationship with his bride, the church. And this is what it says in verses 26 through 27, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot nor wrinkle nor any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Do you notice that? That what happens as we engage with the word is that it corrects our thinking, that it brings about in us a, a change of understanding, that we are renewed in our mind to think things the way God thinks things. It's a cleansing agent. It's like soap. It's an antibacterial hand sanitizer boy that got stuck right god is going to use the word in our life in romans chapter one excuse me chapter 12 verses one and two I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of god that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto the lord which is your reasonable service and this is the important part that I want. I mean, not only is it our reasonable service, that is important too. And that we present our bodies, that's what is being discussed here. I'm going to trust God and yield myself to him and not to the lust of my flesh. This is the part that I want you to focus on as far as we're concerned right now. And be not conformed to this world. Right? We're not going to buy into that, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the washing of your mind, by the cleansing power of the word of God and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit within us that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We want to walk in tandem, side by side, yoke fellows with our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to be engaged in the word so that we might know what his will is. God, is this something that I should do? Is this something that I should engage in? Is this those kind of, Lord, is this your will? Is this your plan and purpose? Is this good? Is this bad? How do I think about this, Lord? We're going to yield ourselves to it by the Holy Spirit and the Word. And last, we're going to trust in His grace. And ultimately, I think this is the biggest point that James is trying to make in this chapter, that we are going to trust in the grace that God has given. Because he's talking about God resisting the proud. God is resisting those who would walk in self-indulgence, in hedonism, 
exalting themselves as their own God at best and exalting the enemy as God at worst. And he's going to resist that. He's going to correct that. He's going to put that down. He's going to give grace to those who will humble themselves and walk with him. And he's concerned enough, to, to use the term properly, he's jealous enough that he will do that. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that he's not content as a loving father to leave us in that state. That he will correct us as a result of his love. <clears throat> Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, we read fonts to this in chapter 6 earlier. But in Romans chapter 5, verses 20 through 21, it says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. But just pause there for a moment, right? Here we are talking about this, the flesh, the, the, the potential to sin, all of that within us. Are we going to trust that, that God's grace, that he has extended to us freely and without any requirement on our part, that his grace is greater than the sin that we may find ourselves in? Are we going to walk in that understanding? He goes on, that as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. The grace that God extends to you and I is bigger than the sin that we may find ourselves in. Now, he was already promised, and we looked at, we've alluded to it as one of our memory verses, that there's no temptation that, it, that takes us, that we're not going to be caught in something that isn't common to man. But God, in his grace towards us, gives us a way out. And we've already talked about that. That is true, and his grace is greater than that. And if we were perfect people, that's where it would end. Because we would always choose the grace to stand under it, to not submit to the temptation. And that's where we should begin. That's what we should practice first and foremost. But secondly, if we're going to fail, and we will, we've already acknowledged that. There's already a discussion in James chapter 4 about the war within us regarding our lusts. We have to trust that the grace that God has extended to us is greater than the sin that we've committed. And that's twofold. Number one, we didn't lose any favor with God. We are still righteous. Our sin doesn't define us. We've talked about that. Number two, the grace that God gives us in the midst of that, having yielded to sin even, he is still greater than the sin that we find ourselves in. And what I mean by that is that we are not stuck. We're not here bound to be slaves to that sin for the rest of our lives. That God in and... Uh, in his grace, will deliver us from it. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Titus chapter 2. <clears throat> Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, the Word of God is living and active. It didn't go out of style. 
it still means in the world that we live in today, not just the world that it was written in. It's still applicable today. The grace of God that brings salvation teaches us that we should deny ungodliness, that we should deny worldly lust, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present, present world. So when we talk about grace, it isn't simply some magical delivering power, but it is the desire and the ability to not yield to it. It is the desire and the ability to not walk in the lust of the flesh. That's why there's a choice. That's why there's a choice. That's why we need the accountability of the body of Christ. That's why we need the accountability of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, reproving us of truth and of righteousness and of justice. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and I want to just leave you with this verse as we close this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. We talk about the power of grace within our lives. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. The grace that God extends to you and I is greater and more sufficient than we could ever realize. Sure, we're going to struggle with sin, but God's grace is bigger than that. that. It far exceeds anything that we may fail in, and and it, it makes it so that we may abound in all good works, that we may have all sufficiency, everything that is necessary. Let's pray. God, we praise you and we thank you for the opportunity to open your word. And Lord, I pray that as we, as we are engaged with it, that it would convict us. Lord, that it would reprove and show us as we look into the perfect law of liberty, Lord, that we wouldn't walk away as your people content to leave things as they are, but Lord, that you by your spirit would be, uh, we would be yielded to the change that may need to happen. I don't know if anybody here has those things that may be harboring, those things that they uh, are stuck in, or, but Lord, you do. And I trust that your word will not return void. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you for the grace that we receive. I thank you, Lord, for the jealousy that you have for each and every person here, especially those who, Lord, have come to faith in Jesus Christ, that you would do everything necessary. And, Lord, that you would keep us as a peculiar treasure. We thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you that we might be forgiven, that we might be made new, that we might be delivered from the bondage of sin and death. So, Lord, we may live as those who are not condemned. And by your grace, Lord, I pray for your grace for everyone here and for myself, that we may serve you acceptably, that we may walk in the newness of life that you have given us. Lord, as we praise you, as we sing now for who you are and what you've done, God, I pray that it would be the inspired worship of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.